Have you ever been scared to death? Maybe it was around a campfire in the woods at summer camp, or late at night while you were watching an old Alfred Hitchcock movie. Most of us quickly get over these fears, but what about the fact that we live in a world that is filled with potential disaster? I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you discover the truth about Jesus Christ. Today on Truth Encounter, Dave Wurtson, our study leader, shares with us from Revelation chapter 1 how we can conquer our fears. Is there someone who tenderly can say to us, Don't be afraid and make it stick? Let's join Dave for the answer as he begins our lesson with a creepy story from his childhood. I was raised about 20 minutes from Newark Airport, and you know what Newark is like, and I was raised in one of these old, eastern, old-timey houses. In fact, we slept on the third floor up in the attic underneath the eaves. It was one of these old houses, you know, that heated itself with hot steam, and so that when the heat came on at night, you heard all these weird rumblings. Anybody raised in a house like that know what I'm talking about? And I remember waking up about 2.30 at night. Here I was way on the third floor, up in this attic, these brown kind of exposed logs coming down the ceiling. And I remember lying there as a little six-year-old kid, and man, I'd hear this creak. And then I'd hear this wind noise kind of go through. And man, I could just picture a gangster coming through the windows down on our bottom floor, tiptoeing through the hallway, coming up the first flight of steps. And sure, that creak had to be his footstep on the stairway. Then he'd go up to the second flight of stairs, and there was a a door he had to open. And I'd hear that, that heat come on, and I could just hear that doorway opening. And then there'd be the third flight of stairs. And by that time, I was breaking out in a cold sweat in bed. And then he'd mug me in bed. Anybody ever had that kind of an experience? the kid you just heard all kinds of noises and you couldn't go back to sleep you know as we grow older we find out that most of those fears of muggings in the night are not true but you know as we gather together around here today there's all kinds of fears that might be plaguing your life some of you moms you know you've just given birth to new little ones and you hear about all the different diseases that can plague a little one, and and just the terror can hit a mom's heart when she begins to think of all the possibilities that could come upon a little infant baby that's been born, and as they grow to maturity, and it produces a terror. It's kind of like an arrow that hits our heart. A woman goes for a standard mammogram, and she doesn't think anything's wrong, and then suddenly she gets this little notice, or usually a telephone call from her physician, and she has to go for further tests. And she's got to go into Big Dallas and get some further tests, and terror comes upon that whole family. Fear, really a powerful fear. Man, you know, when, the, when we go through that season in the fall and that season in the spring, when we suddenly see those big thunderstorms gathering and a tornado can bust through this area. And I remember just being in my house one night and a tornado was just up the street and the terror that comes over your whole being. You know what I'm talking about? Fear is a very powerful emotion that we all experience. John the Apostle experienced that kind of fear. 
And the passage we're going to look at today, as you turn to Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John becomes so terrified that he's knocked flat. I doubt that many of you have ever experienced that kind of experience where the fear and the awesome power that you're confronted with is so strong that it just knocks you to the ground as if you were a dead man. But we're going to find out that this individual, this awesome presence that knocks John to his knees and knocks him prostrate, rather than this individual being someone that he needs to just be like a dead man in terror, this very powerful individual is going to put his hand on John's shoulders. And he's going to say something like this, John, stop being afraid. And I want you to see this great, awesome figure because I think it's really easy for us to miss him. I want you to realize that this great, awesome figure that John the Apostle saw in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, this great, awesome figure is here, and I believe he wants to come to every one of you, and he wants to put his hand on your shoulder, and he wants to say to you, stop being afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Let's begin with the commissioning of John the Apostle. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, we have the command for John to write. In John chapter 1 verse 10, we'll pick it up where we ended. On the Lord's Day, and we discussed last time we were together about how the, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, because it was the resurrection day, became the day of worship. And that's why we meet on Sunday under the new covenant. We can meet every day or we could choose another day because the Lord hasn't given us a locked-in time. But it's become very customary for believers around the world to honor the resurrection of Jesus by honoring him on what's now been designated as the Lord's Day. John was in the Spirit. And we talked last time we were together about the need for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. John was in the Spirit in a prophetic sense. He had an incredible seizure from the Holy Spirit in a, in a holy sense. The Holy Spirit took complete control of his body. He went into kind of a, a visionary trance, just like Peter did when the Lord Jesus wanted to speak to him about reaching out to Cornelius. And he showed him in Acts chapter 10 about the animals being lowered in the sheet. Remember that weird story? And that was one of those times where the Lord pulled back the veil between the spiritual world and the physical world and he let his prophet look directly into the spiritual world. This prophet is recorded in this book, that tremendous experience. So what we're studying here in the book of John is priceless information because the living God of heaven has pulled the veil away from the, that usually divides the physical from the spiritual and John is letting us see what's really going on in that other dimension, that dimension where we will go when we go home to be with the Lord and we go to be with him where some of our loved ones already are. And I want you to learn to cherish that spiritual realm and look forward to that spiritual realm and also realize the effect that it has upon the physical world that we live in. That's what it means for John to be in the spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon him, taking control of his body, his senses, and now going to give him a very powerful, canonical, inspired revelation from the Lord. It says he was in the spirit on the Lord's and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so if you think that your relationship with the Lord is always going to be a quiet thing, that real worship is always just hearing a small, gentle voice, that's part of worship. And part of what we need to have together needs to be the gentle voice of the Spirit. We're going to have times together of silence. We're going to have times just together of quiet praying. We're going to have times in the holiness of our relationship with God where we all just stand silent before the Lord. 
There's also times with Jesus where it's like a trumpet blast. We have exciting times and celebrating times. And a trumpet in the ancient world was a call to worship. If you were raised in the early Hebrew church and the Jewish believers in the Old Testament, you would be called to worship with a large trumpet, that great shofar. And man, that was the call. It was like the call to worship. So that's one of the things that John would think of when he heard that trumpet, that sound like a trumpet. Another thing that the Israeli soldiers were all called to war with a trumpet. When you went into battle, you might remember when they took the walls of Jericho down, that they sounded the trumpets. And just like even in our own culture, up until very recently, in the old wartime days, when they used cavalry and everything, you've all seen the old westerns, you know, where the guys come charging down, blowing the trumpet, blowing that charge. So the trumpet, even in your own culture, is a call to arms. Well, John the Apostle's on this island. Domitian, the Roman emperor, has taken him captive. He's an old man. He's been taken away from his churches. He's been taken away. It looks like this little fledgling group of believers is going to be snuffed out. But praise God, John is now commissioned. And he hears this trumpet call. And it's like the Lord God of heaven is saying, John, I want to call you to worship. But he also wants to call him to this incredible spiritual warfare that's going to be taking place throughout the entire book. So he hears a voice that sounds like the ring, like the sound alarm of a trumpet. Look what happens. It says this. The loud voice like a trumpet said, write on a scroll. And what you want to picture here is about 15 feet of papyrus sheets that were made down in Egypt. Books like you're used to that are bound, like our Bibles are bound, that you're holding in your lap, were not made until the second century. So John was commanded to write on papyri, and then they would join these papyri together, and the book of Revelation would be rolled up in about a 15-foot scroll. So the Lord God commands him to write in a scroll what he has seen. And I want you to send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are going to be the seven churches that we studied together about in chapters 2 and 3. They were seven literal churches that were in eastern, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was the major city. It was the major city of Asia. Miletus was the port city of Ephesus. John the Apostle has been exiled about 35 to 40 miles away from Miletus, out in the Aegean Sea. That's where he's in exile. And now the Lord is telling him, John, I'm going to give you a vision, and I want you to write it back to these seven churches. And then these churches would take the letter, messengers would take the letter that John wrote, they would read it in the church of Ephesus, they would copy it in the church of Ephesus so they would have a copy of it, and then the messenger that John sent from Patmos, one of his associates, kind of like we learned when we say the book of Colossians, Epaphroditus was one of Paul's secretaries that would take his letters, and Paul had other men like Titus and Timothy that would take his letters to different churches. John is doing the same thing, and so there would be a messenger in the church of Ephesus who would be responsible for copying this letter out, and then he would read it. It to the entire church. Then they would take it north to the next city. It would be about 30 miles to go north up to Smyrna. They would do the same thing in that city. They go a little bit farther north to Pergamum. Then they turn south and come down to Thyatira. Every one of these cities is between 30 and 40 miles apart. And I want you to capture a little bit in the first century what it was like. A messenger from the great apostle out there in the island of Patmos would come with this scroll, 15 pages of papyri, 
they would read it. And I want you to understand that we're following in that train. You notice when we gather together as a family of believers, basically that's what we're doing. I'm reading to you the scroll. And then I'm filling in some of the blanks of some of the background, some of the territory that you wouldn't be able to get on your own. That's what a pastor teacher should do. That's exactly why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. We actually read the scroll. And we think about the scroll and we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us about the scroll. The church of Ephesus was a church just like Midlothian Bible Church is a church. The church of Thyatira is a church just like we're a church. The Apostle John evidently in his older years was like an overseer, like an elder apostle who was ministering to all seven of these churches. In fact, it's very possible that they were kind of on a postal route kind of like an ancient Wells Fargo route, where they would take the mail from one of these Roman centers to the next, and then from those centers, it could spread throughout all of Asia, which is exactly what the book of Revelation did. As it was copied in these churches, those churches would copy it, send it to another church, and very quickly, in the second century, we have the New Testament developing for us. We have the Lord God of heaven, which we're going to find out in just a minute, is none other than Jesus... And Jesus is commissioning John under the influence of the inspiration of the Spirit to write this book. And then the book is sent to the churches. And that's how we know what we're reading is authoritative, inspired, divine guidance for us. See that connection? It's very important. I want you to know that that's the authority in the church. I'm not the authority. Our elders are not the authority. Even our congregation is not the authority. It is Jesus speaking to us through his scroll. Amen? You understand what I'm talking about? There's great freedom for you in the body of Christ if you learn that that's where the authority, the Holy Spirit speaking through his prophet, writing it on the inspired scroll. We read it, and then the Holy Spirit illuminates our mind, causes us to understand, and it causes us to change as a church family, causes us to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. This is a great insight into how inspiration worked in the first century. So the Lord God of heaven, Jesus Christ, says, I want you to write in a scroll to these seven churches. And we'll be looking at those churches in great detail in chapters 2 and 3. What would you do if you heard a loud noise? What do you do? When you hear a loud noise and the loud noise is behind you, what's the first thing you do? Right? You turn around. So John does that. He turns around to see the voice. And what he saw was a vision of Jesus. This is really what the whole book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is not just to give you all the details of the Antichrist. It's not just to give you all the details of the seven years of tribulation. It's not just to solve whether the church goes to the tribulation or it doesn't. It doesn't give us all of that's not the point of this book. We're going to talk about a lot of those things. But what I want us as a congregation to do, I want us to capture a vision of Jesus. Because it's Jesus present in our church that's going to hold us together and is going to put his hand in our shoulder and cause us not to fear. It's going to cause us to seize the opportunities that the living Christ has for this precious group of followers of him. John turned around and look what he sees. And for you artistic ones and visual ones, look what he says. It says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's us. That's the church. If you turn to the end of the chapter, you say, Dave, how do you know that? We'll turn to the very last verse. In verse 20 of chapter 1, it says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the messengers. The word angels there means messengers, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. 
They're the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamum, the church of Thyatira, all seven of these churches, what were they? They were lamps. Under the old covenant, they had a seven-branch candelabra. It was all joined together in unity, like you have one of these in Zechariah chapter 4 described. Under the new covenant, every one of the churches is a lamp. It talks about its independence. But I want you to see that in every one of these cities, there was an individual lamp, and that individual lamp was responsible to the risen Christ to bear a witness to the light that's in Jesus. Have you ever been in total darkness? I remember camping out in the Adirondacks where there was no moon, where it was a cloudy night, and actually, like, as you were out in the woods, you'd put your hand right there in front of your face, and you couldn't see your hand. Anybody ever been in that kind of inky, dark darkness? Isn't that scary? What's the very first thing you want to do when you're in that kind of inky darkness? You want to reach in and find a candle. You want to find a light. If you're a good camper, you usually have one of these Coleman lanterns, and you can pump it up, and you can light up the whole forest with that thing. All of you can remember camping out where you pumped up that Coleman lantern and you lit it and you set it up. Doesn't that bring comfort to you? Man, it brings safety to you. Then you can see what's around you. The book of Revelation is telling us that that's the role that you're to play. Every one of you are a lamp. You are a lamp. You say, well, Dave, what are they literally talking about? Some of your friends have gone to Israel where they come home with those pottery lamps and you fill them with oil and you put a wick in it and you put those lips, kind of like a teapot. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we're talking about. And that's the way they would, they would light their homes in the ancient world. They'd have these pottery-like lamps, fill it with olive oil, put a little wick in there, and it would bring light to their house. Now, I want you to realize that the book of Revelation is saying that we, every one of you, need to be a lamp. Our church is a lamp. We're not here just for us to be nice and for us to have our needs met and for us to have, you know, just a great time of warm fellowship together. As good as that is, we must never forget that we gather together and we gather together and when we gather together there should be an intense light there should be intense focus on God but then we should have our lamps renewed so that we can go out into the darkness where they really need to have the light and as you go out into the darkness man your light is threatened and man it's hard to live for Christ in high school and in elementary school and it's hard to shine the darkness of your office then you gather back together with God's people get a little bit more oil of the spirit a little bit more encouragement then you go out into the darkness I want to really challenge you this. You as a believer are not thinking about, I am a light in the darkness. I am a light in the unbelieving world. Then your Christianity is going to be dull and flat. It never will work. Some of you parents say, man, I'm just scared to death as I'm raising my kids. and I'm giving them all the right training and all the right information. But I see so many kids that are raising that kind of stuff. They wander away from it. There's something you need to ask yourself. Is our family thinking about being a lamp? Are we in contact with the darkness? Are, are my kids seeing the power of Jesus to change a life? That's what we're supposed to be. And if we're not what we're supposed to be, then Christianity becomes something that's insipid. It becomes something that's dull. It's become something that teenagers hate with a passion because it's hypocritical. It's just lukewarm. One of the greatest gifts that every one of you moms and dads can give to your kids is the gift of a mom and dad that think of their life of being a lamp in the darkness. So you expose your kids. I remember years ago, we worked with a prostitute from Dallas. 
Jeannie and Dan had her in their home, and we worked for many months with her. Through Pam, we were able to reach out to Gail, another prostitute in Dallas, and Gail came to know Jesus as her Savior. And some of you say, well, man alive, you mean you actually had Pam sitting, you know, Dad met her up in Nebraska. First of all, it was kind of a weird, convoluted story how we got in contact with her. You mean you, you let Jonathan and Joel, when they were just little tiny kids, actually be there when Gail was lit up and drunk as she could be, where she smelled just horrible? You let the little boys be exposed to that? You bet. You don't have to argue very persuasively about how drugs is really not a bad idea when they look at a wasted woman that has needle points all over her arms and is weeping on your living room Davenport because sin has such a control of her and she's got to be reached with Jesus. You don't have to be that eloquent to say, you know, Jonathan, drugs really is not a very good thing. Same thing with immorality. I mean, here's a girl, man, you talk about having sex, man, that's what she does for a living. When you see the waste in it, you see real sin wastes you. Not the kind of the video in the Hollywood presents. Satan lies and he puts a veneer over sin. But when you're exposed to real sin, real drunkenness, real immorality, real cheating, real stealing, those things you find out produce tremendous agony in people's lives. And Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the light, the word to reach out to these people. The truth of the matter is, some of you, all of us, remember when I asked you how many of you remember a day when you were the enemies and when you didn't believe in Jesus and you weren't responding to him? Many of you, about 80% of you raised your hand. You said, I remember when I was out there. Well, that's what we need to keep doing. We need to keep reaching out there and being a lamp. I want you to evaluate your Christian experience, young and old alike. Some of you that are older, do you realize that you have the hardest mission field to reach? And the most important mission field probably because statistically, the older folks, just by the look at the insurance statistics, they could be very much closer to having to, make, having to be sure that they made that decision. And to be honest with you, a lot of the older people won't listen to the younger people. Not that they won't, and the younger people need to witness to them, but often they only listen to the guys. Some of you older guys... Sometimes the only person they listen to is the one that's across the 42 table from them. Or the one that's across the domino table from them. Or the one that drinks coffee in the cafe with them. Because with somebody like me, like a minister, a lot of the older folks, they just give me all the right answers. They just spit out the Jesus stuff. But they speak the truth with you. They'll talk honestly with you. And I want every one of the older believers to realize that you're a lamp. You say, Dave, what am I supposed to be doing? There's people out there that need to be reached. It's those people that are right around you in the cafe. The people that are right around you playing dominoes. The people that are right around you going golfing. And on and on it goes. What a mission field that is. And obviously your mission field doesn't end there. But our role as a lamp never, never ends, does it? We're always supposed to be a lamp. John saw seven lampstands. He didn't see seven smoldering wicks. He didn't see... Total darkness. He saw these lamps shining in a dark place. But you know, the lamps aren't going to be able to be a witness. The lamps aren't going to be able to bring a light unless those lamps are responding to the next individual that he saw. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. The son of man is the most important individual that's ever come to this earth. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, we can find out who this son of man is. And some of you that didn't study through the book of Daniel with us will be able to catch you up. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 presents the history of planet Earth 
from the time of Daniel in the Babylonian kingdom, about 605 B.C. is when Daniel started living in Babylon. And Daniel presents four beasts. It goes back to the image of Daniel chapter 2. He starts out early in the chapter of Daniel where Daniel sees a lion, which represents the Babylonian empire. Then he sees a bear, this this kind of a lopsided bear, which represents the Medo-Persian empire. Then he sees a winged leper that has four wings. It represents the Grecian empire. Then he sees a beast that's indescribable. It's just churning up like an iron, it's this incredible iron, steeled monster, kind of like something you'd see in a horror flick from Japan. And this incredible monster is different from all the other beasts, and it gobbles the earth. Then right at the culmination of this vision in Daniel 7, if you'll look at verse 13, as this beast is ravening the earth, especially one major ruler from that beast, who is the Antichrist, who will be introduced to further in the book of Revelation... But right in the midst of the Antichrist doing its thing, look at verse 13. It says, In my vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a... Tell me. Son of man. There it is. So when John's readers heard him in the scroll write a son of man, ding. Daniel chapter 7. Now who is a son of man? Look what it says. One like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. We had that in chapter 1. Behold, he cometh with the clouds of heaven. Jesus ascended to heaven in the cloud. The cloud represents the heavenly splendor, the heavenly glory. It's not just physical clouds, but when the glory of God, the Shekinah glory comes down upon the temple, for example, in the Old Testament, it comes down in a cloud of Shekinah, of radiating light. And this is the heavenly presence. So this Son of Man comes with the radiating lights of heaven, the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's God. He was led into his presence and he was given authority. He was given glory. He was given sovereign power. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John the Apostle is exiled in Patmos. Who is ruling the world? Can somebody raise your hand and tell me who is ruling the world in about 94 AD, when John the Apostle was in exile, and who put John on that island of exile? Who was ruling the world? Rome was. And what was the name of the Roman emperor that was doing it? Domitian, that's right. Good. Some of you have been listening good. Now, I want you to stop and think of it. you got the Roman legions ruling from the capital, Colosseum, 100,000 people gathering to see gladiators. You can go down to Alexandria and have another big stadium. You can even go to Jerusalem. There's another big stadium. You can go around the ancient world. You've got a culture. It's a lot like ours. In the first century, who did they think was ruling the world? Rome was. Man, you wouldn't give this old, bearded, 95-year-old guy a chance in China, would you? But he saw... He saw the one that was really ruling the world. And I want every one of you to know, if you have Jesus living in your heart, if you have Jesus living in your heart by faith in what he did for you in the cross, what he did for you in the resurrection, I don't care where you go. I don't care if it's the halls of Washington. I don't care if it's the halls of Austin. I don't care if you go to Moscow. I don't care if you go to Tokyo. I don't care whether you meet your your really wealthy family members that think you're a little bit crazy because of your commitment to Christ. I don't care who you meet. If the Son of God's in your life, then you're in touch with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I want you to think through. You say, Dave, how can I know that? Well, look at this revelation. 
John the Apostle wrote this book and Jesus the King is revealing himself to him. And a lot of you think of Jesus as being like a cross between uh, like Mr. Rogers. He's kind of like Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo. That's the way a lot of you relate to Jesus. He's, he's the one that always pats little kids on the head. And he takes off his nice sweet little sweater and hangs it up. And he talks to you in his little kid's voice that all the little kids that I've ever met say, what's the matter with that adult? They have such a squeaky little voice. So funny to see adults trying to relate to kids. Kids are kids. You know, treat them like real people. But a lot of us think that that's the way Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like. You want to see what Jesus is like? This is the way our ascended Christ looks. This man was dressed in a robe that reached down to his feet. That meant that he was royalty. It could also speak of the fact that he was a priest. And he has this long flowing robe in the first century and also many centuries before that. Those that had power, those that had influence would wear a robe that reached down to their feet. They had a golden sash. And instead of being like the workmen that would wear a sash down around where we would wear our belt so you could hook up your garments and stick it in your belt so you could do some work, those that were powerful and royalty and the priests would gird themselves way up high because they didn't have to gird themselves up to do regular work. Because this is a very powerful, royal, kingly presence. It says that his head and his hair were white as wool. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32. I want you to turn over there to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32. It speaks about those that have the white hair. Leviticus 19, 32. Rise in the presence of the aged. Amen? Hey, I didn't hear very good amens there. Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. They've done the old covenant. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 31 says that the gray hair, the white hair, is in the path of living rightly. Older ones with gray hair, and I'm one of you now, one of the things that you're wrestling with in our culture is your culture continually tells you you can't make the changes quick enough, you can't handle all the stuff that's happening in your culture, and so you are tempted by the evil one to withdraw to withdraw into just your home and to withdraw with just your friends and you stop invading other people's lives for Jesus and you stop being involved. You stop being involved with kids. You stop being involved with teenagers. And I want you just to stop and think for a minute. Those of you that have lived with the Lord for many years, what has the Lord done? How many of you that are gray heads or or you, you would have gray heads if you didn't diet, that's fine. Just teething you a little bit. How many of you have grandkids? Billy and Carol have just joined the grandkids. How many of you that are a little bit older have grandkids? Raise your hand. So how many of you have had to interact with little babies and change their diapers and do all those messy things? How many of you as grandparents have had to do that, right? Why does God do that? You know why God does that? Because he doesn't want you to ever forget that you're always part of the growing generation. And he does it right with your own church family. Just in the time, every one of you grandparents have said, phew, I just got my kids raised, and what did you do? You've started in again. But I want you, instead of going, I want you to realize, praise the Lord. Because now I can pass on all of this godliness. Because this idea of Jesus having the white hair, it means that he, in Jesus' case, it doesn't mean at all that he's old and that he's growing weak like we grow weak. But Jesus had white hair because it's saying that he had infinite wisdom. Jesus had gray hair because he has knowledge of all things. Isn't that great? 
As we come to Jesus today, there's not a calculus question he can't answer. There's not a, a, a nuclear question he can't answer. There's not a financial question he can't answer. There's not a family need he can't meet. He has white hair because he's all wise. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Amen? Isn't that great? Second of all, his eyes are like a fire. The picture of Jesus, his eyes are like penetrating beams. My dad could be like that. Anybody have some dads that are kind of like, you know what it means when he's got fire in his eyes, and you go to con him, you go to lie to him, and man, you look at those judges' eyes? That's what it means. Jesus had fiery eyes. Those eyes come upon us. In Revelation 2 and 3, those eyes will evaluate us. And I want all of us from elders to deacons to whole families, I want us to let the fiery eyes of Jesus penetrate us. The only thing that's going to hold us together. I've just heard of another precious sister church that's blowing apart. Blowing apart. They can't decide what kind of worship style they're going to have and what kind of preaching style they're going to have. And, and they're, just, they're having all kinds of conflict over it. It's only the penetrating eyes of Jesus that's going to hold us together. What's important here this morning? Isn't it important just that Jesus be here and that we see him? Isn't that what you all want? You want to see Jesus. Didn't we come here to see him? We encourage each other to see him. And it sounds so simple, but I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I believe you have incredible potential in the kingdom of God to be a model for believers that really focus on Jesus that really focus on Jesus and they love him and they worship him and they let little children worship him and teenagers worship him and college students and adults and all different ways that we do it. But what we really care about when we gather together is not the style that I communicate with. Whether I'm loud or whether I'm soft or I yell at you in a New York, New Jersey, ugh. This is about Jesus, amen? Jesus is here this morning. And man, his penetrating eyes are looking at me. He knows everything about me. Penetrates to the very soul of my being. And I want those penetrating eyes to purify me. And I want them to expose my pride and humble me at his feet. Those penetrating eyes also mean, as they're directed towards me, they become purifying. But isn't it great to know that the penetrating eyes are looking at the mission too, amen? They're looking at the Roman emperor that put John in, in exile. And guess what? Those penetrating eyes are going to have the last words. Also, Jesus is strong enough to stand. The next thing it says about Jesus is that his legs are like flaming bronze or like a brass trumpet. Only the, it's like it's still glowing in the fire. It's, there's unbelievable energy. And it presents the, the legs of Jesus being able to stand strong. It pictures Jesus walking among these churches. And, and, and the idea of these legs, these brass radiating or, or these beautiful radiating legs, is, man, he's going to stand. He's not going to fall over in the church. And boy, am I glad for that. You know what? Domitian's going to be dead in a year. About a year after he put John in exile, he died. And John was released and went back home. Isn't that neat? But guess who was still standing when Domitian fell? And guess who's standing 2,000 years later? Jesus with his fiery legs. The next thing it says about Jesus is that his face radiated. Look at the text. It says that his face radiated like the sun. Man, you want to be beautiful? Someday you're going to have a face that radiates. It says that his face was shining like the sun. And before that, it says out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, The word of God is like a sharp, penetrating sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. 
The word of God is the sword out of Jesus' mouth. As we read this text, the sword out of Jesus' mouth penetrates every one of our lives. That's why it's so important for us to devote ourselves to this picture. It doesn't mean, it's, it, remember I told you it's like a political cartoon. It doesn't mean that Jesus is literally going to come back with a big sword, like a darting dagger out of his mouth. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that when Jesus just speaks, his will is done. When Jesus just says the word, his will is done. And one day in the book of Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, he's going to speak the word. The Antichrist will be done away with. The false prophet will be done away with. Satan will be cast away and bound. But our chance today is to listen to that penetrating word now and to obey it. And so it's very important for us to let the penetrating gaze of Jesus permeate our life. What is Jesus penetrating your life about today? What is his word, his sword of his tongue commanded you to do? And today he offers us to willingly, he invites us to willingly obey. And I want to challenge you, what is the Lord penetrating you about What is he calling you to obey? This was the awesome presence of Jesus that John saw. You see, and it says that Jesus put his right hand upon John the prophet. And he said, John, don't be afraid. You see, this would be an incredible thing. This image, you know, of this revelation, the glorified Christ, just knocked John to his feet. And I pray that you'll see the glory of Jesus today. I pray that I'll see the glory. Some of your loved ones, like my own dad, my own mom, are seeing this glory right now. They're in the presence of Jesus. They've already gone home to be with him. And, and this radiating, just like being in the sunlight. Have you ever been in terrible darkness and you walk outside and the brilliant sunlight hits your eyes? That's what it's going to be like to see the Son of God. Only instead of being blinded by it in our new glorified body, we're going to be able to respond to that. Don't ever buy Satan's counterfeit of that. At a rock concert when a rock star has got a heart just like yours and a brain that can have a stroke and be conked out just like yours, when they put beautiful clothes on and put strobe lights all over them and crank up the noise as loud as they can get, don't worship that. It's all just pretend. It's all just a con. It's all just a counterfeit. And then they'll give you a message that doesn't line up with the message of Jesus. This is glory. This is real glory. One day when you go to heaven... You want to have exhilarating experiences? You want to be just knocked flat in your sensations? You want to have someone who will just overwhelm you with glory? It's Jesus. That's who can do it. And this incredible Jesus today, though, he puts his hand on John's shoulder. He says, John, don't be afraid. I just love that. He really said to him, stop being afraid. And that's my prayer to some of you today. I think Jesus wants to come to you today and says, stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. You get word from a mammogram, we're going to cry with you. But most of all, I want Jesus to come and put his hand on your shoulder and say, hey, don't be afraid. You got kids that are wandering away and you don't know what to do with them? Jesus comes today, puts his hand on your shoulder. Don't be afraid. Little moms, as you hold those precious little ones in your, in your arm, you say, you think of all the bad things that could happen to them and all the potentiality. Jesus comes and put his hands on that little baby. says, hey, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You know what that means? He was here before it began. And guess who's going to be standing when it's all done? He's the last too. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that Revelation chapter 1, as it powerfully communicates to us a vision of the reigning, ruling king of kings, 
I just ask you, Lord, that his awesome presence would overwhelm our spiritual nature, that we would be able to see him. Right now, we just see through a glass darkly and then face to face, but I pray that by the control of your spirit and by the wisdom of your spirit, that you would open the eyes of my brothers and sisters and help us to capture a vision just like John did. As John's recorded the reality of the reigning Christ, I pray that the reality of that reigning Christ would grip our hearts, would keep us unified, would keep us as a lamp that's shining in a dark place, that we would truly have Jesus put his hand on our shoulder. And as we go out into the challenge of this week, that we would truly hear him say, Stop being afraid. I'm here. And I'm going to win the victory. Lord, if you could overcome Domitian through this very ancient 90-year-old man and his revelation, the revelation of John, is the one that proved to be true over 2,000 years, then we as a body of Christ, the body of the Lord Jesus, are going to stand with John the Apostle and we're going to worship and we're going to prostrate ourselves before no other but this vision of the glorified Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.